Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast with me, Molly Herford. Another fun episode. I'm so excited to get Thousand Helmets founder Gloria Wang on the podcast. Oh my gosh, we had so much to talk about, starting with the fact that, and you know, spoiler alert here, she went on a vacation this summer. That's right. It's okay to take vacations when you are hustling hard, you are, you know, running your own business, you're dealing with employees, product launches, you know, all these new innovations, marketing, everything, you can still take time for yourself. You are still allowed. And if anything, if you know, if nothing else, I think that was one of the most important things that I personally got out of this episode. It was very much needed for me. But beyond that, Thousand Helmets is such a cool company. They're doing really innovative stuff in a, you know, seemingly stagnant field. It's not like helmets are traditionally something you think of as being super exciting in the cycling industry, but the way that Thousand talks about them, markets them, and makes them, honestly, they're they're pretty exciting. So it's a really fun chat about how to start a product-based business, what you need to be paying attention to, what the sticking points are. Uh, just so much knowledge from Gloria in this episode. And I think it's it's one of those ones that's so important for anyone who's thinking about that idea, that spark of like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, you know, for me, I often think because I've talked so much about women's cycling and women's comfort in cycling, specifically in that like saddle and chamois area, part of me has always wanted to make some kind of product around that, whether it was a, you know, wipe or in my funner moments, I've thought about a bike packing replaceable chamois where you could actually be swapping out just the chamois in your shorts. I swear if someone steals that after listening to this, I will probably actually be pretty excited, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, I've always come up short when it comes to starting something that's going to be very product heavy because, frankly, it's a huge investment of time, resources. It's not something that you can just kind of like stick your foot, stick your toe into. Uh, you're basically... Uh, jumping in headfirst. So uh, it's, you know, really cool to hear from someone who figured out how to make that happen. And it was not, shocker, an overnight thing. This is years of work that went in before she even, before she even got the first helmet prototype made. So if you're thinking about starting a product business or any business, honestly, lots of really great takeaways in this episode. Uh, And without further ado, let's get into it. Enjoy this episode with Gloria of Thousand Helmets. Okay, Gloria, right before I hit record, I was talking to you about your actual vacation you took in June. And I think everyone who like wants to start a company or is working for themselves or in that entrepreneurial set desperately needs to hear this. How did you decide that you were actually going to take a vacation? How was it? And how did you do it? Because I know you and I talked about you were like, weren't sure if you were going to check your email or not. I, I... Um, I'm not, this is not a badge of honor. This is just something I did. I really have not taken a vacation since I started thousand, like a proper vacation for like, you know, I'm talking about more than a day off here or there. Um, how did I do it? I got married and I got peer pressured into taking a honeymoon. So <laughs> I won't even say like, I, I like came upon some wisdom about self-care. I got married and my priorities changed a bit. Um, if I'm honest, and that's, and it was a real positive because mm-hmm. going on a vacation and a honeymoon for a first time and honestly getting married, I realized like having balance in life, like probably makes you a better business leader and a bis- better boss just because 
when you're just so focused on trying to get your gold and trying to get, you know, what, what you, what you want to hit, like you, you do lose perspective and focus and you can't sleep well and all these different things. So yeah, I will say it's, it, I'm still learning this lesson, but vacations are a positive thing. I think so. I think so. And it's one of those ones where I actually completely agree with you, like getting married and then actually getting our dog. Both of those were like very big changes in how I viewed, like how much work I do, how much travel I do. But looking back, I I will never regret the amount of work that I did. But I also go back and I'm like, oh, I wish I kind of knew this when I was like younger and single or like before we had the dog. Like these shouldn't have to be like you shouldn't have to have these major life milestones happen in order to realize that a vacation is a positive <laughs> Well, I think like the, for me, it was this, it was like the thing that made me successful at the beginning was like, I believe that I always had a better work ethic than anyone, anyone else. Like I was like, I can work. I may not be as well financed or well networked or as smart as other people, but I know I can work my way out of a box. And like, at some point that has, you have to have another value system for yourself beyond that to like continue to scale and be successful. So for me, it was, it was just a change. It was just learning that, that, that what, was true for me maybe at the beginning didn't continue to be true for me and I had a and I am still trying to let that go to some degree that like I can't work my way out of every problem a hundred percent yeah and it's funny I was actually having a conversation with someone else about this this morning where I was saying I just keep like I take on more and more work because I part of it is that, that I actually see that there's a lot like some work that I do that AI is going to take over in the next few mm. years and like I can't work as hard as a a bot is going to be able to like there is no amount of typing speed that I'm going to have that is going to beat an AI like yeah. machine that's pumping out news. So that has made me think really differently about how I work and thinking towards like, okay, it can't just be about the volume of work that I do or like the time I'm willing to spend. It actually has to be about like the impact of the work that I'm doing and what what it does. Yeah, um, totally. So Let's let's back way the heck up. What is Thousand Helmets? How did give us like the the TLDR on how Thousand Helmets came to be? Sure, I'll I'll give you our story. Um, my story starts with probably back in college. Um, started biking in college. Uh, basically, I went to school at UT, and I could either take the bus or walk. Um, and if you've been to Texas, you don't want to walk in the summer times in the bus with like 50 other sweaty UT kids. It's not like super ideal. So I learned how to build a bike and, you know, ever since then I've been riding. Um, and I, <laughs> it's so funny. You and I have the same exact like cycling origin story. It yeah. cracks me up. I was just talking to my sister about this and I actually was saying to her, that in some ways that actually like destroyed my personal style because in high school I was like of the punk rock genre that wore a lot of like fancy dresses and like really like poofy skirts with like crinoline under them because like the fifties mm -hmm. vibe was like the thing. I remember that. Yeah. And then, then I got to college and I realized riding was the only efficient way to get from class to class and keep up with my schedule. And suddenly I couldn't wear that stuff anymore. And it completely changed like my style, my career trajectory, everything. Yeah. You, Amazing. You had to roll up a pants leg. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. So I think you had a very similar experience. Like the bike, like was just kind of this necessity, but it changed everything. Yeah, it did. And like in Austin too, I, I know we're so off track, but here we go in Austin too, for biking, 
biking was like a real community building thing back then. Mm -hmm. Like there was like the yellow bike project and like Franken bikes and like there was bike culture. So I also just enjoyed that. I just like built, built a lot of bikes, rode a lot of bikes, um, have always been a recreationalist and a commuter, but you know, I, I've just liked the culture for a long time, mm -hmm. but well, yeah, it's everything. And it's very different cultures too. I think what I love about Thousand Helmets is that it's it's looking at the cycling culture that isn't the FTP, like time trial, road racing, even even mountain biking or that. Like it's very much the every person cycling culture veering a little into like the funky punk rocky, like stylish side of things too. There's an there's a there's some culture. Yeah, there's an indie culture to it. But yeah, you're right. I think I I started Thousand based off of what I knew. I I was never so much of a enthusiast or a sports cyclist. I just but I thought bikes were really cool. Even back mm -hmm. then, because I was learning how to build bikes, I had and I still have a deep appreciation for like steel frame lugged bikes that like are from the 70s and 80s that I think are super beautiful and mm -hmm. you know. It, so all of that stuff. So, you know, I think there, there isn't a, a different appreciation potentially mm -hmm. than like, enthusiasts of the sports side, but. Yeah. Well, and I think actually that vibe is very much where the, the thousand aesthetic comes from. So talk to me about deciding to start thousand, because I think like, it's not like, it's an interesting market because it's not that there weren't helmets available, but you did yeah. still see this problem in the space. Yeah. So yeah, maybe back to my story. That's where my kind of love of cycling started. Um, and I always biked for me. I was a commuter. I was a recreationalist for sure. Um, never wore a helmet actually all throughout this time. So in college, I never wore a helmet. Um, starting my like working profession, didn't wear a helmet, still commuting. And I had a, I had a moment where um, actually a friend and a mentor of mine passed away from a really bad cycling accident. And we were kind of cut from the same cloth in lots of ways um, and you know, he was riding around New York, wasn't wearing a helmet, got into a head first, um, impact, uh, with a car and passed away on impact. And I, I knew he wasn't wearing a helmet. And, um, I think because of that, at that point, I just knew I kind of needed to start, like I needed to start wearing a helmet just to be responsible to like, you know, myself, people around me, all these things. So I went to sort of buy something um, and I found a bunch of things like that, like, don't get me wrong. There were, there were passable options, but nothing that I really wanted to wear. And for me, mm -hmm. cycling did feel like part of my identity and culture. So it, you know, I didn't want to, I took so much pride in the bikes I built and own that I, I wanted something similar, if I'm honest, probably in a helmet. Um, and that's where thousands of mission came from. Like we wanted to make helmets people actually wanted to wear, uh, to help save lives, to get more people riding and, and moving in cities. So that was the genesis of the story. I think we've, we've grown since then. And now we're, we've got a, a vision of, you know, making tools for urban travelers to really outfit people as they move around these cities more. Um, love but it. it's probably all in lots of ways rooted in that, like original, like love of like a very specific type of like cycling, um, but wanting something really quality and wasn't like a throwaway 40 or $50 helmet. Um, it, you know, I, I like, you know, quality things. I think I wanted a brand that represented that too for myself mm -hmm. selfishly. I love it. I love it. Um, okay. How, how did this, like, how did it start though? Give me the, like, 
day one, what does this look like? Because it's not like helmets are super easy to design. I don't think like you didn't go to college for like helmet engineering or like fashion design. Um, no. So how does one get this off the ground? Like you think it's a great idea, but like, how does it go? Yeah, uh, I had the good fortune of my background. Um, my background's in nonprofits. And like, uh, I was actually at Tom's when I decided, like when I kind of had this revelation, the mentor that passed away is actually someone who hired me at Tom's. But um, I had the benefit of being Tom's and it was a really quickly growing company. Like I started when it was a 15 person team and like I grew with it till it's a 500 person team. So I I got like five or six jobs while I was there. And during my time, I got exposure to everything from e-commerce marketing, product development, all of these different things. So I, I had the skill sets. Like I knew, I knew what a go-to-market calendar was. I knew the product development life cycle. So for me, it was trying to find an industrial designer who could design something um, that I knew could pass like all the certifications you would need for a helmet. Um, but something kind of in my original vision for me, I was like, well, how do you make a helmet that looks cool? And my thought was always, you know, this idea of like, I always thought that era in the fifties and sixties of Steve McQueen and like these vintage cars was like just a super cool era and motorcycles back then looked super cool. And so did vintage kind of scooter helmets. So I'm like, well, why don't you really design something like that for the bike market? And it's for the every person. Um, so that's, that's the genesis of where that happened. And for me, it was really finding a, a designer that would be willing to work with me for my very small budget. <laughs> um, and it was just getting a prototype out there and launched. Um, my job at the time at Tom's was like kind of launching go to markets and like innovation projects. So I, I was, if I'm honest, I was super familiar with the process of getting it like together. Mm -hmm. It was just trying to probably embed myself in the bike industry super early on when people thought this was like a fringy idea, which is probably the hard part. Yeah, for sure. Now, if you're, if you're giving advice to someone who maybe wants to, you know, develop their own product, do you think that actually is like the smart way to do it is working within a, a similar company and actually like figuring out how all of this works? Because I feel like you can't go to school for an education like what you got at Tom's, like actually being on the ground and seeing all of that happen. Yeah, I think there might be programs these days. I think I think I heard University of Oregon has something kind of interesting. But beyond that, like you're right, you probably can't go to school for this easily. For me, it was learning, yeah, what a product development life cycle looked like, timeline, budgets, tooling costs, um, and what it would take to launch something. And I, again, I had had decent um, visibility into manufacturing at that point. So I knew, you know, I knew how often people were going to China's and working with factories, and this would not be an easy process, especially for something with tooling and a hard good. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say that's a total one, like just to get maybe into a company or an internship with a company that mm -hmm. could give you some yeah. visibility to this. I think even if it's a year or two, that's such a like invaluable education and yeah, just puts you so far ahead. Now, even, even with be having all of that behind you, I'm sure there were some struggles, mistakes, perhaps things that you would have done differently had you known. Can you remember any of like the early day, like, oh no moments? Oh yeah. I, I mean, yeah. there are many, there were like, we launched, so we launched as a Kickstarter project. Again, like I, I really was running this out of my own savings account. Like that was in the beginning was not, um, didn't have funding or anything like that. We were bootstrapped. This was all kind of my savings account, trying to get this off the ground. Uh, 
but I definitely remember the very first big manufacturing issue we had uh, would have set us back like was going to set us back nine nine months in the timeline, and it would have had we basically would have had to redo lots of our tooling. So it was going to cost us like ten or twenty grand at the time to like change. And to try to make sure everything went well and got fixed, I remember I remember going to our factory and I lived there for like two or three months to try to get this project back on track because we had a delivery timeline. We had a meet for folks because we were a Kickstarter project. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was, um, it, I will say running a business and starting something is basically like, someone told me it was like um, running to fire, to fire with enthusiasm. And I would 100% agree. If you like to solve problems, then entrepreneurship is for you. Yeah. In those early days, as you're running from fire to fire, how do you keep your stress level? I don't even want to say manageable because I feel like that's not it. Um, But at a point where you could still be effective, because I think so many people would be either like hiding under the bed or like running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And it takes like a very level head to deal with fire over here, fire over here, fire up here. It's a good question. If I knew what I knew now, which is like having breaks and relief and like giving and giving yourself like grace, uh, I think I probably would have gone through those years like with less like with like less like stress um, on my mind. I think for me, I I guess for me in lots of ways, I think my attitude has just been like, I never have wanted to fail or let myself fail. And if I could just apply enough effort, if I was willing to put something in, then like I always could achieve something. I don't believe that's true. <laughs> if, I, if I'm honest, look, looking back, you know, I've been doing this like eight years now. I don't believe that's true anymore. But back then, that was my mentality. I I thought I could run through a wall if I tried hard enough. So um, that's what I did. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't recommend that these points, but I will say something about early entrepreneurship for for people I see, the people who it's not to say you should run through a wall, but if you're not willing to run through a wall, your chances get a lot lower. And and that I've I've seen that theme pretty commonly in entrepreneurship. There've been a lot smarter, well. Um, funded people than me. But in the beginning, I was just so willing, (laughs) so willing to do anything to make this work that um, I think that did get us over the first hump. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this morning I was actually reading, there's a set that's like 90% of startups fail. And like of them, it's like 85% fail because they, they run out of money and just like, they just can't keep going. And I do, I often wonder like, is that because they, they wouldn't run through the wall or like, wouldn't try? Yeah. Sure or you wouldn't money. like, you know, you wouldn't live off of PG and J's for mm-hmm. like a year and like Airbnb out your house to like get extra money and do this side job or that side job. And um, sometimes people really don't like don't want to mm-hmm. sacrifice their quality of life to make it work enough. But like, I think you have to remember in entrepreneurship, there's like 10 other people that might be willing to do that. So mm-hmm. sometimes that is the difference uh, in the yeah. early days. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's why a lot of the time, you know, you, you hear this talked about as like a, a younger person's game in terms of like those kind of startups, because I think when you're 25, like, yeah, Airbnb in your house and like living at your parents, not a big deal when you're you know approaching 40. Uh, suddenly the, the living at your parents' house seems a lot less uh, 
a lot less Instagram, like, look at my hustle and much more like, oh no, you're living at your parents' house. <laughs> you're a hundred percent right. I think they call them the golden handcuffs. Like at, in this stage of my life, I don't think I could have done what I did back then. I literally, I didn't have anyone else to take care of. I was willing to use all the monies in my savings account because I was 27 and I knew I could rebuild a savings account. Um, Mm-hmm. But now where I have like responsibilities and a family and all these different things, like much harder for people to do and start something now. And for yeah. myself, same, it'd be much yeah. harder for me these days. Yeah. Now I want to come back to the Kickstarter. So that's how you launched. Do you think that's still a way that people should launch or like are launching? Because I feel like I, I've actually almost... I feel like for a while I wasn't seeing it. And now I'm almost seeing like a resurgence of Kickstarters. Interesting. You know, I launched in 2014 and this was like, like maybe a year or two before people were doing like million dollar, $2 million launches. Like, and they were just putting their whole marketing budgets in these and doing paid advertising. Like mm-hmm. if anything, I would say Kickstarting plat- Kickstarter and platforms like it have become more powerful because, you know, when I did it, we raised the amount we needed for tooling and a little rent of production um, based off of word of mouth. Like I, I emailed my friends and family. I, I emailed like journalists I had found online and I like asked, asked my friends to post about it on Facebook because we were all posting about stuff on Facebook back then. But beyond that, I didn't do anything. These days, uh, crowdfunding platforms have become a real machine. Like you mm-hmm. can put, you can hire agencies to run these plot to run these launches. You can um, do paid advertising. Some companies exclusively do all product launches on Kickstarters and they make millions doing it. So Wild. if anything, it's become a, a well-moiled machine um, that is like giving companies a chance to launch without funding. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's like beautiful what actually mm-hmm. Kickstarters have become. Yeah. Well, and on that note, I've talked to quite a few people who kind of have gone sort of straight to venture capital, but I've also talked to plenty of people who have really shied away from that. What's what's your VC stance or like investment stance? You know what? A thousand, if I'm honest, and when we launched thousand, we like had a good Kickstarter. Again, it was before it was before like Kickstarters were like a really big thing. We had a lot of offers for funding. Um and at that time, I really declined everything more so because I really didn't think I knew what to do with it. Like that was the, that was, that's the truthful answer. I think that's actually a huge, I, I think it's very impressive to have the wherewithal to, to know that because I think it's pretty tempting, but then you actually have to think about like, oh crap, I now have this money in a bank account. What do I do? They're going to yeah. want it back. Like that's the point of this. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing. Like I really didn't understand it well enough to, to, to engage in that in the early days I knew myself well enough to know I'm willing to work for no money and I'm willing to try to build this um I'm trying to build this and scale this and you know so that's the path I took I if anything it was maybe the one of like less risk for me because I it, that felt more reliable at the time I think my perspective now on like funding is really it, it just matters it just depends on what you're trying to do it for like I think when thousand was launching I grew up in the culture of large VC checks and everyone trying to grow at all costs. Um, And it was really tempting to want to go that direction lots of times because you're like, am I not doing something right? And, and vice versa. I saw, I've, I've also seen people take a lot of VC money um, and they've taken that money at exactly the right time to be able to scale quicker than everyone else. And they have been able to deliver people great exits. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I guess for me, like my perspective on invest, taking on investment is like, do you actually know what you want to do with it? How you're also going to get people a return at the end of the day. Um, yeah. And I guess more than anything, like what's your vision? Like some companies don't need investment ever and others really do. So mm-hmm. it's just figuring out what company are you and what do you want to build? For sure. And I think that's one of those weird ones that we all talk about the like having the vision and like having the like, what is the goal of the company or the purpose or the 10 year plan? The number of times I talk about it is legion. The number of times I've sat down and really, really honed in on it. Solid zero. Have it on my calendar a lot of times, but there's always like the daily stuff that needs to get done that sort of supersedes it. Um, so do you think that is like a super important thing that a lot of, a lot of us miss? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And taking money changes everything in, mm-hmm. in that question. Like if you, if you don't have a real, you have a vision, absolutely. But to your point, if you break down all the steps you have to do to get there, do you really want to do it at the end of the day? Building a, a proper company that's scalable and that's doing significant revenue is hard. Um, I had a good mentor tell me that they're like, do you really want to take this path you're taking now? You could just have a lifestyle business. That's, you know, you get a good salary and you don't have to stress out too much. So I think either is valid, honestly, for sure. Yeah. The path is valid. It's just figuring out what you want to do in that moment. Yeah. So in that moment, you know, you've, you've now grown the company, you have employees now and stuff. Talk to me about like the move from, you know, you emptying your savings account to suddenly you have employees. What was like the first hire like? You know, it's so funny. The first, again, I think people think like when they can hire people and they can scale, it's really glamorous and their problems will be solved because they've got more bodies to, to, to tackle stuff. Um, but it's not because then you have to actually learn a whole new skill set, which is um, shifting from the maker to the manager. How do you start to manage people? How do you scale an organization? How do you um, start learning your financials well enough? So the your your decisions don't affect just you anymore. They affect other people and like their livelihoods. So for me, like the first for me, like I realized like there are some things I wasn't great at, but I needed to hire if we were going to scale. So that those were always my first hires. The ones, places where I'm like, this company long-term needs these things to be really successful in the, the market. And also what am I not great at? And and those were my, you know, my first employees. Um, but the the journey to scaling was very, it's very haphazard in lots of ways. Like it's very, in some ways it feels simple um, because there's a PL and you can balance if you can have more money coming in than your expenses and you can use that cash flow and you can grow. Um, but then you hire employees and you think they work out. Sometimes they don't work out, you know, all these different factors of like, I, I think for me, maybe the one thing I've learned in this whole process is also just adaptability, like things that are true today are not true tomorrow. Um, yeah. And that's been true for scaling and hiring employees and all of these different things. You have to constantly be willing to, hold a deep truth and then throw it out the window the next mm-hmm. day. Yeah. Yeah. Now, were you good? This is a weird way to phrase it. Were you good at knowing what you weren't good at? Or was that actually like a struggle to figure out like, okay, what is it that I actually need help with? Because it's not my thing. Uh, I asked, I think I actually have always done that. Well, I've always had like pretty good self-awareness and what I'm really good at. And when I'm like mediocre at, 
And I would say anyone can figure that out. If you can be like, I'm great at this, but I'm like not so great at these things or I'm average at these things. If you can say, if you know what you're average at compared to everyone else, you're probably bad at it just because there are so many people that are going to be great at it. So mm -hmm. like think of the things that you can probably manage and do well. Those are the things you want to <laughs> get rid of to scale your organization. Things that you're like, I can tell them, I I get this nut. I can crack it all the time. Like this is something I can really lean into with people. Those are the things you're great at. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Uh, okay. And with the growth, I think what's been so interesting about watching thousand for now, almost a, like almost 10 years, um, you've really stayed true to that original aesthetic. You know, there are different iterations of the helmets, obviously, you know, a few, but it's not like you've ever gone into like, okay, we're a helmet company. So we're, we're on graphics. I love that you didn't just go like, we're a helmet company. Now we should make helmets for enduro and road biking and time trialing and like all of the other cycling helmet things. Instead, you actually went with like, what's sort of in line with the helmets that we currently have. So talk to me about building out the, the product range that you have, because I think it was such an interesting way to I guess, iterate and build a brand that's built on the simplicity of this very aesthetic helmet without just like saying, this is the only thing we have. Yeah. Um, I'd say my, my thought process in that is one, I think I never, for me, thousands more than a helmet company. I I've always wanted to truly to be like what I've called it, like a tools for urban travelers company. How can we outfit you getting around cities better? So I guess my thought was like, honestly, how do we just serve writers? Um, and that's why we started with helmets. We moved to lights and launching in another category in, in the next few months. Um, so I think that was my approach. Like, how do we go deeper with a customer? How do we do more share of closet um, is, is what I always call it. Um, and I guess from for us in Thousand and what we have always put out, for me, the, the cohesion comes from like, what's your design philosophy? And Thousand's design philosophy has always been simplicity, convenience, and sustainability. So we always design for those things in mind. Um, you know, simplicity, it is uh, streamlined uh, shapes. It is high quality CMF, you know, for convenience, everything we use has really simple um, human interaction points. For sustainability, we're always pushing into how do we do uh, more recycled material or how do we do something um, with less carbon impact. So like, so like for us, like once, once you have those design principles, it's just really figuring out then what can I make to serve my customer next? Um, and I think that was always my intention with building this brand. It really wasn't like, how do I just dominate share in every single one of these categories? Because I'll also say this, like, I may not be the right person in in the pure sense that like, I'm not the customer. Like if, if right. I made a mountain bike helmet, I'm not sure I'd make the best one because I don't have a customer insight there. I do really have a customer insight on again, the recreational and commuter customer, because I'm this customer. Um, so I think that's really how we've stayed true to who we are, really through customer insight and sticking very strong to our design philosophies. Mm -hmm. I love it. And we didn't really touch on this earlier. Um, let's quickly explain what the thousand brand name comes from. And I mean, I think I asked you this last time. I'm like, now that you've hit that thousand, do you change it? <laughs> Is it now 10,000? <laughs> Yeah, the uh, you know what the the thousand name came from like this this idea of could we help save a thousand lives? Um, and very a big milestone of ours, which we probably haven't talked about enough as a brand, is that we we've we've crossed it this past year. So for us, it was um, 
We've replaced through our accident replacement policy. So if you're ever in a crash or accident, we actually replace your helmet for free. Um, we've, we had our hundredth or we had our thousandth replacement, I think back in April or May. So do we change the name? Probably not. We already got the trademarks, but <laughs> uh, yeah, that feels like a lot of work. <laughs> but I'm again, I'm I'm looking forward to again helping helping the next thousandth customer. Mm-hmm. I love that. Now you've you know gone from being a, a one woman show figuring all of this out to now you you know run a team. You were actually able to step away for a vacation. What does like day in the life look like for you at this point? <laughs> Uh, and funny, in, in lots of ways, it's exactly the same and like totally different than when I started it. Like where like I've talked to a lot of other CEOs at this point and a lot of and like there's I think there's this idea as a CEO that you sit in like an ivory tower and then you direct and you do strategy all day. And that's like so far from the truth. I think for me, like the best leaders I've met is like they're sure they can take a 50,000 square foot view and what's happening, but they're in the weeds. They're like digging in the ground, <laughs> like, like everyone else. Mm-hmm. So I'd say it's, it's probably a lot of that. Like some days, you know, last week we did a leadership offsite, like our strategic planning 2024 kickoff session for us to, you know, do budgets and forecasts for next year. Um, so sometimes it's really high level. And then the next day I'm trying, we, we just, we just, uh, launched a new CRM. So I'm like literally trying to manage tickets to see if these things actually flow together because we're having an issue here. So it's, you know, or so it's, it's, um, it's a little bit of everything. I think. Yeah. I would still say we're, we're eight years old, but I would still consider us a startup. And then as a startup, I think you're adaptable to anything the business needs, um, that Mm -hmm. day. Ooh, I'm so curious about what the strategic planning session does look like. Can you give me some insight into like, you know, what are you sitting down? What are you talking about when you are kind of doing this like vision for 2024? Because I feel like everyone should probably be doing this, like whether you're a one person show or you're, you know, a team of 10 or a hundred or a thousand. So a thousand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think different companies do it different ways. Like some people start with like a five to seven year roadmap of what you want to become. And, and every year you kind of talk about what pieces do you want to start orchestrating to get to your five to seven year vision. And, you know, that's, 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 I would say to a good degree, what we're doing. Um, And you're talking about like, well, what should we do next and what should we prioritize? Well, what are our strengths and weaknesses and what are our opportunities and threats? Like, you know, and as a team, what do we think is feasible? What resources do we need for it? And like, you basically set a plan, you set a budget against it and you, and you set what your forecast can be. What do you, what heights do you think you can reach? And then the year is just operating towards that plan and like refining and tweaking and sometimes changing it up and like, you know, a performance management cycle against that. So Mm -hmm. it's, um, it sounds very streamlined, but I would say it's like pretty, pretty, the things you have planned right now go totally off track by like April or May. And then you renegotiate goals and you figure out the new goal and you get back on track. And mm-hmm. I think the process is always incremental improvements towards your goal. And, and I think that's how people get to a new height. Like you've got to, you've got to build a system to get there. Yeah. For my yeah. Perspective. 
this is actually going way back to what we started talking about with the vacation. Did you find on vacation you were like getting really good downloads of kind of this like 50,000 foot view of things or on vacation did you just completely shut down any thoughts of work? No, I mean, I can't. I couldn't do that. I have a, <laughs> I've got like a seven to eight year track record at this point of working all the time. So it was really hard for me, probably about the first week, probably a week and a half. I was still checking emails daily to like make sure nothing was exploding. Um, hey, you know what? That makes vacation more relaxing. I stand by it. Like not yeah. knowing it, like just knowing that your inbox isn't on fire. Like I find that much more soothing than not checking it. <laughs> Totally. And you know, for me, the benefit was like, I was, I was, um, I was in Europe for my vacation. So I, I had like the great pleasure of like having to go to bed on a different time zone and waking up and lots of things were already done. Yeah. So it was like, for me, it was probably a process too, of like trusting that my team would always like step up, um, if I was out and they would figure out problems themselves. So like, for me, it was also, it was also a good learning lesson to like release a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Because people will always step up and and pick up the slack and 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 lean into things. So mm-hmm. it was positive, and I'd also say it was really positive in the sense that, like, you also learn that nothing, nothing is going anywhere. Like things will not burn down in two weeks. <laughs> so yeah, if anything, it's a good recharge for you as a person to to take some time off. For sure, and I've often found kind of why I was asking right after we were talking about like kind of the long-term planning is when I do get away from the day to day and I'm a little out of the inbox and not thinking about like the, like what needs to be done by this Friday, I'm much better at thinking through what's the actual future look like, or like, what do I want it to look like? And I get way more ideas once I've had that space. Totally. And I think you realize too, like what's a priority and what's not a priority. What's a priority just because you feel so pressurized in the moment that you got to fix it or what's actually going to be something that has long-term impact. So time, time off also helps with that. Absolutely. Ah, okay. The last thing I really wanted to talk to you about is the, you're a woman who founded a company in an industry that is so predominantly white male, just middle-aged, yeah, mammals, but middle-aged men in Lycra. Um, How, and you and I have talked about this before, but I would love to hear for the sake of the podcast here how has that been like have you noticed does it feel like there's more opportunities less opportunities where where are you at uh for sure I've noticed uh (laughs) I I don't I don't know if I've met um another Asian woman in actually I have I've met Bonnie at Giant but beyond that I really haven't met a lot of other um probably people of color and and probably less so women in the cycling industry. Say in the beginning, I was really self-conscious about it, if anything. I, you know, when we had our marketing material and Kickstarter stuff, um, everyone kept on asking me why I wasn't at the forefront of the brand so much. I also came from a brand that was very founder first. And I was, and you know, in the beginning, my answer was like, I don't know if people are going to trust me. I really don't look like what this industry looks like. So I, you know, I wasn't, you know, a, white guy with a beard. So I, you know, it made me kind of self-conscious and I really never wanted to promote the brand too much because I, it's not one, my personality, but then two also like, you know, I I didn't feel like I belonged so much. Um, And I think that was a good starting point for me because part of Thousand's mission became creating belonging for others. Mm -hmm. Like, like as a brand, like, um, 
inclusivity is like one of our core tenants. So how do we always invite other people under the tents? And that shows up in our marketing and our team and all of these other places. So for me, I think I, it was positive for me to come from that experience. Cause I've, I've always wanted to bring others into, you know, cycling as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I think more than ever, people embrace that idea too. I think this generation, like Gen, like Gen Z more than anything, like really embraces diversity. So I guess I, at first it felt like something that was my, um, kryptonite. Now I kind of think of it as my superpower. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I know it's not changing rapidly, but do you feel like maybe in the past few years, it's been like a little more comfortable having a seat at the table as a woman person of color founder, or is it still just completely white male? I, I will say this. I, I really feel like I've always been treated very well in the cycling industry. Like my colleagues have always treated me with a lot of respect. Um, and I always felt like I got, I was actually always felt this too. Other women in this industry have made it their point to try to get me a seat at the table. So, so while I would say like, I wouldn't say there was like equity at the very beginning, like from my perspective, among all of my like colleagues and people in this industry, I see a lot of um, desire to to make sure there's equity. And mm-hmm. I think I'm appreciative of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we've talked about it before. I've always tried to see it as a positive. Like I'm aware that being a woman in the industry has like, there are pros and cons, but I've always tried to look at the positive of like, okay, if there aren't that many of us, like, A, we can, yeah, kind of band together. And like, I think I have a lot deeper friendships than I'd say, you know, a lot of guys in the industry have because like, there are so few of us that, you know, like, you know, each other, you're close. <laughs> like you want to hang out when you're at stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a hundred percent, I'd say people who are at like companies that we, I could would potentially consider competitors. They will, at least they would consider me <laughs> me a competitor. I might not consider them a competitor in the sense that I, I don't know if we're trying to do the same thing. Um, I've actively had women from other companies that may have been like kind of considered competitor ask me like, how can they help? You know, what are we doing here and offer suggestions or tips? Um, I'd say like one of the best leaders, I think in the cycling industry is Jen Dice, who's, you know, the CEO of people for bikes and she's making it her business to try to (laughs) make cycling more inclusive. Um, Mm. So not saying this is a perfect industry by any means, and there's not many more leaps and bounds, like it has to go, but I think there are good people on both sides, men and women um, sure. that are, they're fighting the fight to, to make this industry more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think right now is a really honestly, like a great time for women to be getting into it. I mean, we're seeing more women and young girls get into cycling. We have, you know, from like the racing side, but also just from like the bike boom from the pandemic. So I think now is an awesome time to be thinking about the the cycling industry, especially as a woman. Yeah. I think people's ears are open too. like people, like I think people may understand, like maybe we weren't, um, you know, maybe there was pink it and shrink it. Maybe there was kind of a deep emphasis on women in this sport and also, you know, BIPOC in this sport, but I think people generally want to understand and listen right now. So mm-hmm. Well, they finally understood that it actually like goes towards their bottom line to listen. That yeah, for sure. That'll help. <laughs> At the end of the day, that will help. Um yeah. yeah. But again, for me, it's 
I personally don't feel like it's an industry that's like contentious and that's trying to keep people out. I think it's it's a posture of trying to figure out how to learn more. And Mm -hmm. for me, like, that's the only place to start. Love it. Okay. Where can everyone find thousand helmets? Uh, which, which helmet would you recommend right now? What's your, what's your current favorite? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, you could find thousand, uh, explore thousand.com social and online. Um, REI is a big one. We've got a lot of great independent bike dealers around the U S uh, and across the country and, and globally too. My favorite helmet right now, honestly, I wear our, I wear our our chapter helmet. So a little bit of our less known one, but I like our chapter helmet. They have interchangeable visors, uh, MIPS, all of these cool things, but that's, that's been my favorite. Lately. Which color? I'm a fan of honestly black. Cause I'm a pretty simple person and we have like a rainbow visor. Uh, so it's like kind of a reflective one. We we've made with some eyebrow factories um, that basically it's been my helmet for the past year. Love it. Ah, Gloria. Thank you so much for chatting with us. This is so much fun. I love talking about all of these things, especially the idea of maybe not checking our email quite as often, but still <laughs> keeping an eye on it. <laughs> Same, Molly. This is so fun. This is nice. I This is less uh, structured than I, I've done them in the past. And yeah. We believe in conversational. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning into the Business of Fitness podcast. Hopefully you got a lot from this episode and hopefully it's going to help you with your business in the fitness industry. Make sure you're following along with me over at at Molly J. Herford and at business.of.fitness over on Instagram. Keep up with Feisty over at livefeisty.com for tons of fun stuff. And of course, if you like this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave us a rating and review. Thanks so much and we'll see you soon.